is BJ Council. I view the world through the lens of having been followed by a white clerk as a child while shopping in a five and dime. I'm a retired police executive and own UN50, which gives guidance on surviving interactions with police. I'm Harmony Chavis, and I view the world through the lens of one of the most misunderstood and diverse generations in our nation's history. I'm a social worker and a believer of radical kindness and love as modalities of healing. My name is Andrew Council. I view the world through the lens of a generational camera phone. I wake up as a black male and go to bed as a black male. I am surviving this never-ending court case we commonly call life in the best way I know how. Welcome back. This is UN50, and I appreciate you guys coming back and joining us for our conversation today. Um, we have Seth, I did not ask you how to pronounce your last name. Uh, Stoughton, but nobody gets it right, so don't don't feel bad if you wouldn't have. <laughs> Seth Stoughton. So Seth Stoughton and his co-author. There it is. This book of evaluating police uses of force, and so we're glad you're join, joining us for this for this conversation. Um, so UN50, I think most of you know by now, is uh, we go around and we do workshops in, on how to safely interact with police. Uh, our main goal, and it has always been from 2015, is that we could care less how you feel about the popo. Uh, we just need you to get home. Uh, and we want to give you uh, the tools on how to interact. And we also want to help you navigate in getting the kind of police department uh, in your community. And those comes from having various conversations and having different types of persons at the table. So we uh, saw Seth on uh, Trevor Noah uh, and was his, the information that he was talking about just resonated with me as a, as a police executive, a retired police executive as to what he was saying. So I took a chance and I reached out to him and um, he said yes. So before we start talking to our guests, I want to just say hey to Harmony and Andrew to give you guys a few minutes, just a few seconds to say hey. Andrew. Oh, hello. Um, so I, was, <laughs> I was trying to wait for Harmony to go back. Um, that's, that's okay, too. Um, but everything's good. It's good to be here. I mean, I'm interested to hear Seth's point on a lot of things and a few questions that I have, depending on his articles that he's written. So I'm excited. Cool. Thanks. Harmony? Yeah, I'm good. Today's my dad's or would have been my dad's 74th birthday. And I think that this is such a nice way to honor him. He was such a radical freedom fighter and his heart was just wide open. So I think that this will be a great episode to to honor him and to uh, remember all the sacrifices that he made both locally and, and abroad. Um, I'm really proud to be his daughter. Um, and I think that he would have really loved to hear this conversation with Seth. So I'm excited to to dive in. Cool. Thanks. All right, again, Seth Stoughton. Stoke, say it again, Seth. I'm gonna mess it up. <laughs> Stoughton. Stoughton. Stoughton, it's not that hard. I, uh, I want to make sure I get this. You're the principal author uh, of the co-authors that, that did this with Jeffrey Noble. And um, it was interesting, Jeffrey and Jeffrey, one with the J, one with the G. Jeffrey Noble and Jeffrey Alvin. <laughs> yeah, this, it's, it's sort of the, the Jeffs and Seth show, oh, I guess, man, that was, when, when we get together. That was, yeah, <laughs> I saw that. So first of all, just kind of tell, tell me a little bit about yourself. I did a little research. I saw you were from Boston at some point and ended up in Florida. Uh, yeah, so I've, I've, uh, I don't even know where I'm from anymore. I, I, was, uh, I was born in California. I have no memories of it. My parents moved to South Florida before I was two or right around the time I was two. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I grew up in South Florida. I lived in North Florida uh, for 10 years, which is how long it took me to get a four-year degree. I'm, uh, I'm a little slower than the average bear. So um, while I was in Tallahassee in North Florida going to college, I joined the city police department. I was there for a little under five years as a full-time officer, stayed on for another six months as a part-timer. When I left the city police department, I went to a state investigative office for a little more than two and a half years. So total in policing and investigations about seven and a half years before I decided that I was sort of done with Florida. And if you've ever read a Florida man story, you'll know why I'm, yes. I'm, I'm over Florida. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're all true. That's the sad part. Uh, no, I, 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 have, I have a lot of uh, family and friends still in Florida. There, there are parts of it that I like a lot, but I was ready to sort of move on and see what else was, what else was happening in the world. So 
Uh, I packed up my, uh, my, my wife and two very young kids. Uh, they were kind enough to accompany me to law school. Um, I went to law school in Virginia, um, graduated, uh, worked for a federal judge, and then sort of lucked into this academic route. So I've spent the last now, this is my ninth year as an academic studying policing from the perspective, not just of someone who happens to have done it for a little while, but um, someone who's looking at it as a, as a legal scholar. So, well, I guess I was going to ask, why did you go into law enforcement? Is that something you wanted to do or did you just need it? Like me, I just needed a job. <laughs> I, I was tricked, BJ. I, I was, um, I, so it, it's, I was working as a martial arts instructor and I had a good friend who was the PIO, the public information officer of our city police department. So he, uh, he got me more interested in it. I started to do some volunteer work with the police mm-hmm. department. Um, eventually, uh, I started doing ride-alongs with him. And he convinced me to take a job as a reservist, which would have meant taking a semester off of college and going through the academy. Um, but uh, the, the pay was pretty good. Like uh, this was in 2000, 2000 when I was having these conversations, 2001 when I went through the academy. So uh, the pay for reservists was 16 bucks an hour. It was a lot more than I was making anywhere else. Right. Um, and it was, you know, when you're, when you're 20 years old, that's kind of a sexy job. So I thought, all right, I'll, I'll join up. I'll do, uh, I'll take a position as a reservist, uh, finish out my time in college. And then in the interview process, uh, uh, the, the police chief, my agency was large enough that there were hundreds of officers, but small enough that the police chief and the two deputy chiefs were still the ones doing the, the oral board, the interview, mm-hmm. um, and they said, you know, we have some full-time positions that are funded right now. And, and you know, from working in local law enforcement, they aren't always funded. You can't always hire to cover your gaps. Mm-hmm. So uh, they said, if you want to switch from applying as a reservist to applying full-time, we have those open positions. And I, I told them I wasn't quite sure I really wanted to finish my degree. And they said, well, a number of officers have finished their degree while working full-time. And at that point, I was like, sure, sign me up. And had I been the cynic and the the lawyer and the investigator that I am now, right, at the time, I would have said, you know, when, when you say a number of officers have done that, what is that number? Because it was a very small number. Uh, it's really difficult, as you know, to work full time doing shift work and also finish your schooling. So that's that's really why it took me 10 years to finish my, my four-year degree. Wow. Cool. cool. Really what it took me is like seven years to finish the last year and a half of my four-year degree. But, you know, we don't need to get technical about it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, yeah, as I noticed you're also a black belt. I was, yeah. I, I suppose I am. I was uh, I was teaching. It's actually where I met my wife. I was teaching at a, a Kempo school, um, okay. remained active. She now manages uh, a boxing gym here in Columbia, oh, wow. in South Carolina, wow. where we live. So we wow. stay... Um, uh, I I mean this in the in in the amusing way and not at all in the serious and and uh, problematic way. But violence is sort of a cornerstone of our relationship. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Well, let's kind of get down to to your book. I, again, I I loved it. I probably got so much highlight through this entire book. I, it takes me forever. I have to go back and I'm oh my god, that was a good point. And I'm just constantly doing that on this book. Um, You're very kind. Thank you. No, I mean, just as a, um, I mean, I think, you know, to get started, you look at four perspectives, the constitutional laws, constitutional state law, administrative policies and community expectations, and the police tactics and use of force. I guess for me, and this moment, when I, when I, as I'm reading this book, I'm seeing information that usually that most citizens don't know. And so when I hear comments like, well, the officer shot somebody and he gets time off and it's like, well, part of his job is to be violent or you know, that's part of the job description, unfortunately. And so this for me would be good for, for community. So when you were writing this, um, who, do, who do you think will benefit most? Do you think, I, I mean, I think all, everybody, I think law enforcement, definitely you've got some good information for them. So do you think community can Persons who are 
involved in the movement? I mean, where do you see this book resting between law enforcement and the community? Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that, that my co-authors and I are, are real proud of is the the range of views that we tried to pull in. Um, so I'm a, a former beat cop and uh, a, now a law professor. Um, one of my co-authors, Jeff Noble, uh, was never an officer, but he's been a criminologist. He's done 30 plus years of studying. I won't tell you how big the plus is, but he's done 30 plus years of, of studying <laughs> the high risk aspects of policing, including the use of force. And our other co-author, Jeff Noble, uh, is a retired police chief and now um, does consulting work, uh, including on some of the highest profile use of force cases in the country, Philando Castile, uh, Tamir Rice. Um, so we wanted to find a way to present these perspectives in a, in a way that hopefully would be useful as a resource to community members or activists who are interested in the area, while also having information that a police executive or a use of force instructor or uh, a beat cop like I was could sit down and get something out of it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, also speak to lawyers who are litigating these cases, either civil or criminal, and also judges as they're looking for ways to help figure out how to go about deciding, not how to decide any particular case, but how to go about deciding any particular case. And one of the things that that really motivated us to write the book is we saw a lot of confusion in the way that people were talking about the use of force, including people who really should have known better. Um, so when, when, uh, when uh, in the aftermath of the Eric Garner incident, right, in New York, um, one of the things that uh, NYPD representatives were saying was this was a lawful use of force. And my co-authors and I were talking to each other and we said, well, that's not what people care about, right? People aren't asking, was it lawful? They were saying, this is wrong. It's avoidable. It looks like a problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, uh, when a, a prosecutor was bringing a case against an officer, sometimes they were saying, well, the officer's actions were constitutional, so we're not going to prosecute here, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's constitutional law, but the prosecutor is supposed to be applying state law, and that, that's a difference. So we saw at, on almost every side um, just misunderstandings about how we look at a use of force. And it, the reason for that is because we don't look at it in any one way. We look at it in at least four different ways. These, these four, what we call the analytical frameworks that you mentioned, um, constitutional law, state law, agency policy, and what we call community expectations. And just because any given use of force satisfies one of those standards, let's say it's consistent with constitutional law, mm -hmm. it might not satisfy another standard. It may still violate agency policy, or it may still not be what the community expects. So we wanted to give people not just sort of the right way to do the analysis, but we wanted to tell people, look, there are, there are multiple ways of doing this analysis. And if you're from the police side, for example, if you're a police chief and you have a controversial use of force, you have to be able to anticipate and talk to the community about their perceptions of it. And that's not going to be a Graham v. Connor Fourth Amendment analysis. That's going to be a community-based analysis. And if you're the community member and you want the, to reform the police, if you want to improve what police are doing, you have to at least know how they're looking at things so you can sort of find a way to speak to them in their language, right? Find some sort of common vocabulary. So I guess that's a very long-winded answer. I apologize. This is what you get for having a law professor on. I just keep <laughs> rambling. Um, I, we, we want it to be a resource uh, for folks who are interested in this area, whether that's personally interested uh, or whether there's a, a level of professional interest. You know, I'm going to let Andrew and Harmony, because I know they're, I know Harmony, she's the radical one on the, on, in the group, but I really appreciate what you were saying. Um, there is a language because part of what I'm also trying to do is work with communities because there is a particular language for law enforcement. And as a community, if you don't know how to speak that language, uh, they're not going to listen to you. As soon as you come in the door, they'll be like, nope, not listening to you. So I appreciate the fact that you said that because that is a reality. Um, but this this book is just, uh, and before I, I'm going to let you guys in, it's just the first thing I thought about, Seth, <laughs> was civilian review boards. As I was reading the first few chapters, I was like, God, this could be a curriculum <laughs> for 
those individuals are going to be sitting on civilian review boards to understand, like you said, the way that law enforcement is looking at this stuff. So, I, I, so anyway, all right, guys, go ahead, Harmony. I like it. I think it's really funny that you anticipated that I had to say something. And for once, I really didn't. So I was like, oh, crap, like, I better come up with something quick. Um, <laughs> but and, no, and so that I, <laughs> she, she really set you up there too, Harmony. Right. Not, just, not just were you going to say something, but it was going to be radical. And powerful. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Um, <laughs> but what I do appreciate about your writing, Seth, especially the the piece on the Atlantic that talked about that basically police training is supposed to be violent you know it that's kind of the point um and I just I feel like that is such a powerful statement to say and also a really beautiful way to illustrate that that type of compassion and understanding from both sides right like communicating to community members that like we understand your frustrations and you know we do need to obviously make some changes to to the training that police go through but also understanding that you are trained to behave this way Um, and I think that cognitive training is something that a lot of us don't understand because it is so normal but you know if you feed your dog at 7 p.m. every day your dog's going to expect to eat at 7 p.m. I mean it's a very primal type of response uh, to respond to things that you've been conditioned to respond to Um, so I just thought that was a really brilliant way to kind of bridge these two worlds together and really start the conversation from a different perspective one that doesn't place personal blame uh, but one that's really systemically looking at how policies and practices are put in place yeah thank you for that I, I appreciate it i i think sometimes when there particularly when there is an incident um, the natural focus is is to individualize right it's to look at that particular officer and what they did and uh to to criticize to uh, call for prosecution to whatever it is and look, sometimes that may be entirely warranted. I, I do not want to suggest that we shouldn't be doing that when the when the case is appropriate. Mm-hmm. But you have to understand if we want to fix the problems in the future, not just if we want to punish people who do that, but if we want to fix the problems in the future, if we want to prevent people from doing that, then we have to understand the systemic causes. What are the pressures and incentives that led someone to do that particular thing, to behave that particular way? What were the failures, right? What could we as a society or as a system have done differently? And uh, police training, I, I, I think you're referring to um, a, a little older article um, in The Atlantic titled How Police Training Contributes to Avoidable Deaths. Yes, that was that was the one. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. I don't read the date, but yes, <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the, the, the sad fact of it is I, I think we could just move the date to this year and uh, right. it would probably still be applicable. Um, the the point that I make there is a, a great deal of police training is very much um, emphasizes fear. Uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not the only one to observe this. Uh, folks who have studied policing f- since far before my time have, have made this observation that police has this emphasis on a danger narrative or um, uh, fear as sort of an outgrowth, a particular outgrowth of uh, a distrust and us versus them mentality that we're all probably sick to death of, of talking about. Um, uh, Michael uh, Sierra Alavolo, Aravolo, excuse me, um, uh, has a, a wonderful series of papers on this sort of cultural identity and, and being very fear-based in policing. And it, it sets up a problem, right? If, if officers are taught to be afraid, if they are taught that officer safety is the overwhelming priority and that it's their first job to come home at the end of the shift and literally everyone they interact with is a potential source of danger to them, then it makes it very, very difficult to build the kind of relationships, trust-based actual relationships that you need to advance policing beyond a sort of adversarial policing as something that's done to a community, right? It's awfully difficult to work hand in hand with someone you're afraid of. Right. Right. That's so powerful. Um, And I think it just, it reminds me of kind of like trauma-based responses. Even if you've not been traumatized firsthand by an event, you know, watching an event, hearing about an event, and, um, you know, you said that that is actually what they do in police training. It just reminds me of somebody that's 
hypervigilant and it sounds like a trauma response. Um, and that's not a way that I'd ever really thought of it before. Um, but I think that that does explain a little bit of why people are so quick to react. Right. And, you know, I've said it before to BJ, like I am trigger happy. I'm scary. So I know that I probably would shoot somebody, um, which is why I would never go into the police force, but you know, what do we do to help people not only like to fix the the system itself of training, but also to help people before they even get to that point to understand, okay, maybe, maybe this is just not a good position for you because I think that's another piece of the puzzle um, that's, that's often missed. Yeah. Some, some of that puzzle is we have police doing way too much in society, right? We have police responding to things that in a better formed society that had a more, comprehensive public health and public safety infrastructure, we Mm -hmm. either wouldn't need the police to respond or we wouldn't need the police to respond to the same extent that they do, like take mental health crisis, for example, right? right? Mm -hmm. Um, We should, we shouldn't be where we are on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's, there's a school, um, there's something called positive psychology, which is something that I am in no way expert on. Uh, But positive psychology sort of tries to flip the script. And instead of focusing on the fear-based aspects of policing, it's, well, look at the opportunities, right? What are, what are the positive parts of that? Can we train people to view uh, the, the world? Can we train people in a positive way, psychologically speaking? There's a guy named Eric Patterson who, um, uh, let's see, I think he was with NYPD. I know he's with FBI, I may be wrong about the NYPD connection, so apologies, Eric, if I got your background wrong. <laughs> um, but he he's uh, developing a positive psychology program for police training to help address some of this issue. And it's not to be to be clear, right? It's not that police shouldn't be aware of uh, particular threats because there are particular threats in policing. Um, it's that they shouldn't make the mistake of assuming that someone is necessarily one of those threats. Mm-hmm. And we need to do a better job of training officers to do risk analysis, right? Risk analysis is basically how severe is the risk and how probable is the risk. And when you put those two things together, you get a number, right? Or you get a, 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 a gradient, a scale. Well, police training focuses way too hard on the severity of the risk, and it doesn't educate officers very well on the probability of those risks. So giving officers a better sense of risk assessment, uh, I think, could address some of the problems that, that, you're, that you're talking about. Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, we're probably going to be looking up some of that stuff. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Andrew, you got anything? I guess I was like, you know, I'm always being the sponge to everything, kind of just listening to things as they go by. Yeah. Um, I appreciate um, the article that you did right at the end of 2014. Um, there was points that I pulled from that. And it, to, to echo what Harmony said, I think something that um, was very powerful to me, something that you said, um, was to focus on systemic change and things that can happen after um, the situation that is not focused on solely the individual. And I also... Um, agree with your point about focusing on the training that happens before or some screenings, mental health screenings or psychological screenings that could happen to make sure that the right people get put in these positions. So I, I agree with that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we have, you know, unfortunately, the way that police agencies do hiring now, um, it, it was a little more than 20 years ago when I went through my interview process, right? Uh, And they do hiring basically the same way, the same tests, the same interviews, the same scenarios. Our hiring does a decent job at, not a great job, but it does a decent job at weeding out the worst possible candidates. But we haven't really developed as an industry a good way of identifying the best possible candidates. And that's that's a problem. Um, Also, I mean, there there are so many factors. There are so many parts to the system. Like whenever we're thinking systems, there are a whole bunch of parts. Policing really evolved as a blue collar job. Uh, And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm from a very blue collar family. So that makes complete sense, or at least there's no discredit on that. Um, 
but it's not the same in other countries. For example, in Germany and the Netherlands, there you might go to a two-year police college, which is not like a criminal justice program here. At a police college, they are teaching you the theory and history of policing, right? Specifically of policing. They are preparing you to practice as a professional officer. Here, I think we have one state that requires a four-year degree. The vast majority of our states require someone to be 18, 19, 20 years old to have a GED or high school diploma, and we pay commensurate with that. So in many parts of the country, starting officer pay is uh, maybe a little better than starting unskilled laborer pay. Uh, the retirement's usually better, but starting pay usually isn't. Now, by the time you get up there in the ranks and when you factor in sort of overtime and uh, the opportunity for moonlighting, right, you right. can make a lot of money in policing, mm-hmm. but that's kind of add-in. Mm-hmm. Well, on the spirit of you get what you pay for, it's awfully tough to say that, you know, an officer for $34,000 a year, you're going to get the kind of candidate that you definitely want policing your community. Well, wow. right. I definitely see that. And then also, you know, I'm just interested on the personality types that are more interested in jobs like policing anyway. Um, I think that that's a good standpoint to, or I guess vantage point to look at um, just because, you know, like people that are more sensitive. um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like Mm Myers-Briggs, but I'm an INFP, for instance, and people like me are usually creative. They're writers, they're therapists, like pretty much fits in well into the things that I'd like to do and the person that I try to be. Um, and I just, I just wonder from a behavioral analysis point of view, what makes people want to go into policing anyway? It seems to me that a lot of these men are men that struggle with like ego issues that are generally hyper-masculine. Um, and, you know, I don't know the specific statistic, but I remember it being pretty high, like the number of police officers that are male that abuse their intimate partners. Um, so yeah, I would just be interested to know if you've done any type of behavioral analysis that, that looks at who tries to be a police and what are the, I guess, the incentives for them to do that in the first place outside of, you know, like workplace packages. Yeah. That's a very good question. So it's one of the common questions that gets asked in an interview, right? Why do you want to be an officer, right? (laughs) Right. And everyone, I don't know, uh, uh, you may have a, um, you may be able to flesh this out more than I have, but I've only ever heard one answer and that's to help people, right? That's it. I was going to say that's that's the only answer. (laughs) Everybody says it's the only thing you can possibly say, right? Because I mean, what else could you say? And that's interesting because it's actually one of the questions that I want police executives who were doing the interviews to follow up on. Okay, but why help people this way? Why not become a paramedic and help people that way? Or a nurse or a doctor and help people that way? Or a lawyer and help people that way? Or an accountant and help people that way? Or <laughs> like, there are so many ways to help people. Why not uh, work at a food bank or like so on and so forth? Yeah. So what about helping people in this way um, attracts you? Yeah. And I think as we get into that, uh, there are some there are some characteristics that are not necessarily bad, but that are relevant, right? So um, someone who is going to become a police officer has to have a certain degree of comfort with violence and physical risk. And I want to emphasize that when I'm using the phrase violence, I don't mean that with any sort of negative connotation. I'm not saying that violence equals brutality. I'm just saying that violence is accurate, right? When an officer takes someone to the ground, even if it is the most lawful, appropriate, necessary, and unavoidable thing in the world, it's still violent. That's just a description of the of the of the action, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am at least comfortable, kind of calling a spade a spade and saying, yeah, that's that's violence. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I do think that there has to be an element of comfort with violence uh, and with physical risk. Where I think we should be very cautious is anyone who is eager or enthusiastic to engage in uh, violence or Mm -hmm. who is seeking out physical risk, right? It, It may be a job that lends itself to adrenaline junkies, but I don't really want an adrenaline junkie doing the job. Right. Um, and this too, I, I think, is where we need better better screening, better identification. We also, frankly, we just need a better sense of what it is that we as a society want from police. Because Absolutely. we give 
We give them tremendously mixed messages. And like with the, with the um, mental health crisis, we leave it up to police to handle a whole range of things that they can't or shouldn't be dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and we sort of set the stage by we, I mean, like everybody, I mean, our entire society, right? We've mm-hmm. set this stage uh, for, for really bad outcomes. And unfortunately, the really bad outcomes are not evenly distributed across society, right? And what I mean by that is uh, the chances that I will have a negative outcome with an officer are not necessarily the same as the chances of, um, Andrew, if you don't mind me picking on you, uh, of Andrew, right? Like we, he's way more handsome than I am. We don't look the same, right? We don't have the same risk profile from an officer's perspective. Um, and to sort of, I don't know, I'm, 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 I'm going to steer away from getting political, but I will say if everyone had the same risk of, um, if everyone was exposed to the same risk of police abuse, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have the same problems with police abuse because the folks who were at risk but had power, political and social power, would make sure that they weren't at risk anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, um, poor folks, mentally ill folks, uh, people who lack in some way social power or political power uh, are at higher risk and are in a less uh, a, a less advantageous position to, to force the changes that would reduce their risk at the hands of police. I don't know if that made sense. Hopefully it did. It did. It made, it made a lot of sense. Actually, it kind of segues into what, what I was going to ask yeah. you. Part of your book was, you know, use of force is messy. It's messy. And then I think you said trying to investigate it is messy. So when you when you as as you're writing this book, I mean, how how do you make it? I don't know whether you can make it less messy, but how do you you know, what are you hoping that your book will help when people are looking at it um, from these incidents that occur? You know, how how do you kind of help them? Yes, it's messy, but this is, you know, I guess for me, what I as, as a black police executive and trying to navigate this, trying to not always look at it from a police perspective, but looking at it as a as black female perspective, but also wanting to tell tell the community there are laws that that they're working that you that like you said it's lawful but awful. I think you use you use it in your book. And the thing is, how do you get folks to in this moment to understand some of the stuff is confined by the laws. And if you aren't in power, then you can't really change that. So how, how can, I guess, when you, how can your book help people understand that and then maybe motivate them to figure out, okay, maybe we need to change something? Yeah, that's such a good question. So um, the chapter one is all about constitutional law. Uh, and chapter two is about state law. Uh, and with chapter one, we try to go pretty far into depth and, and provide a, a real path through the constitutional analysis. Um, that's easy to do in some sense, or at least it's not easy, but it's it's possible to do in some sense, because there's only one Fourth Amendment and the Supreme Court has these decisions and they apply to all 50 states and the territories, right? But with state law, it's kind of all over the place. And one of the things that we wanted to do is provide a highlight of state laws so that people could see there is a whole menu of possibilities. States do not treat police use of force the same way. Uh, Some states are very restrictive, particularly with regard to deadly force. Some states are very permissive, particularly with regard to deadly force. And if you don't like a particular approach to something, uh, let's say um, Atlanta and the prosecution of Rayshard Brooks. Uh, if you think that what happened to Rayshard Brooks is a crime, well, I did some analysis on Twitter of all the of all the formal places. Uh, <laughs> I I think it's going to be very very difficult to prosecute Rayshard Brooks. Uh, excuse me, to prosecute the officers who killed who killed Rayshard Brooks. Mm. Um, not because they did everything correctly, but because of the content of state law. So to answer the question, how does my book help uh, hopefully empower folks? Well, if you know what the state law is, that puts you in a position of being able to say, this is not what I want. This is not enough. Or maybe this is too much, whatever your opinion is there. And then saying, 
we need to change this. If you don't like the law in Georgia, but you do like the law in Colorado, maybe you advocate or you vote for folks in Georgia to say, we need a law more like Colorado's. Mm-hmm. I'm just picking those two states sort right. of out, off the top of my head, right? Yeah. Um, if you don't understand what the rules are, then you're really not going to be in a good position to advocate for changing those rules. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to just say it shouldn't have happened. We can all agree something shouldn't have happened, but that doesn't make it crime that doesn't make it uh, even a civil suit, right? Uh, that might make it, to, to use the phrase you used, and certainly that I've used before, could be lawful but awful, right? Mm-hmm. A lawful use of force, but one that, it, that no one looks at and says, yes, that, that should have happened that way. Exactly. Um, the, other, the other part, right, is the investigation and, and the use of force. I really... One of the one of the lessons that I want to leave my students with in in every class is be skeptical of simple answers. Um, <laughs> life is not simple. Human interactions are not simple. Uh, police interactions are not simple. And when you add in the sort of big picture issues, right? Race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, perceived class those just add further layers of complexity to these already not simple aspects of human interaction. So anytime someone has sort of a simple response or a simple thought, like, well, all we need is X and that'll fix things, right? I, I'm, I'm very cautious of, all we need is body cams, that'll fix things. Right. <laughs> How's that working out for yeah. you, right? Um, exactly. I think there's an old saying, I wish I knew who, uh, to whom to attribute it, um, but it's for every complicated problem, there is a solution that is simple and elegant and wrong. <laughs> and I totally agree with that old saying, right? So I, I, one of the things that I hope, the other thing, I guess, that, that I hope people get from the book is these are complex and complicated issues. Investigating use of force is complex and complicated. There are a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of evidence that um, can be uh, conflicting. That's okay. That's the nature of an investigation. But we have to resist the urge to oversimplify. It's easy for me to say as an academic because I like complicating things maybe too much, but we really do need to resist the urge to oversimplify because that leads us to look for soundbite solutions. And in, let's see, a hundred and what are we at? 180 years, just about 180 years, roughly of American policing. Um, if soundbite solutions worked, we, we would, the problems would be solved by now. Yeah. And, and, I guess also in this moment, people aren't ready to, to come in and sit down at the table and have this conversation because it, because this it's going to take a minute to do what you just said. I mean, this isn't going to happen overnight. It's, it's everybody wants stuff to happen. It's all about you know defunding or reforming and reallocating, and that that's not that's a simple solution, but that's not going to be that's not going to be effective in the long haul, in my opinion, because it's just it's there are other systems uh, involved in this. Um, so, yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely correct. So I wanted you, um, I went back and read your, when you first got to South Carolina University, you said what, what I, I was fascinated by the way that what you said, you're, you're studying your research, I focus on the regulation of policing, police practice and advice, and you're fascinated with the way police and law interact. You didn't say people and law enforcement you said police and law interact and i thought that was so cool the way you did that because it, it really does boil down to the laws that impact folks so kind of talk about that a little bit but i i can appreciate you saying that because yes law enforcement law enforcement is only doing the individual officers is is where these moments are causing individual decisions that officers are making but they are at least in some of their minds, acting based on the law and the people they interact with. So when you when I saw that, I was like, that that was to me. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm in love. It was just profound. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I, so far I can't find anything wrong with what you say. I'm 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 all about it. And and so can you talk? I about appreciate what, that. What what this is what that means to you? But I, it says a lot to me. Just people in yeah. love. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um... I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to be a little bit over having having already warned about the dangers of over simplicity. I'm going to be overly simplistic. Right. Um, no one is born a police officer. It's a job and it's a government job 
in a democracy, which means the function that police play is created by law, right? It is the law that gives, not to be too you know, dramatic, but it is the law that gives shape to policing, what police look, uh, what police officers do, what they look like. Um, and, and let me define that a little more precisely. Um, state law determines who can be a police officer, period, full stop. Right. It's not the only thing, but uh, state law sets the minimum criteria. If you want to be a police officer in state X, you need to meet these minimum criteria. Right. You need to be this old. You need to have this education. You may need to be a U.S. citizen. You may need to uh, pass or not a mental health screening and so on and so forth. Right. That's just one way that the law impacts policing, that the law and policing intersect. Here's another big one. Um, what can an officer stop someone for? When can they do a traffic stop or a pedestrian stop? In the United States, those stops, unless they're consensual encounters where someone agrees to chat, let's take those off the table. Those stops are detentions. They are seizures for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. And the Fourth Amendment limits the ability of the government, including police officers, to engage in seizures. They have to be reasonable. Well, what makes them reasonable? Officers need reasonable suspicion that someone has engaged in a crime. That's the Terry stop, the investigative uh, detention, <laughs> or they need probable cause that someone has committed a crime. Well, what makes something a crime? Law does, right? Law <laughs> is what sets the standard for what police can stop someone for. So imagine a city, for example, where someone is saying, look, cops are stopping a lot of people for jaywalking and they shouldn't be. It's causing these conflicts. It's giving rise to arrests and use of force. We need officers to not, not do that. Change the law, right? <laughs> if, if, if jaywalking wasn't a crime, officers wouldn't have the authority to stop for it. Or if it wasn't a civil infraction, they wouldn't have the authority to stop for it. So that's another way that law shapes the, the very core of the police function. And it's not just crime, it's, it's other aspects of policing. Um, the, uh, going back to the mental, uh, uh, mental health uh, instances, uh, law that sets out authority for police to involuntarily detain someone for psychiatric evaluation, for example. Um, so those are just two ways, hiring criteria and law that sets out police authority. There are a bunch of others. Law may limit or set how police are investigated. It may limit or set how police are uh, disciplined. Law may give rise to a collective bargaining system where the police union can negotiate for certain procedural protections. Well, that affects the way that officers do their job. It affects what officers can be fired for. Uh, you can't separate law and policing. It's there are all kinds of aspects of policing, including aspects of policing that really relate to this core issue of how officers behave when they're interacting with community members. But law is like the backdrop against which they're, they're acting. So if we want to, and particularly when we expand the term law to also include like rules and agency policies, right? That's sort of not law in the, in the hard sense, but law in the soft sense. Um, Everything an officer does, who an officer is, is shaped by law. So if we want to change policing for the better, then we should look at where we can make those changes, right? What sort of legal changes or policy changes we can do that will hopefully have the effects that we want them to have. Well, yeah, I, do, I, you, I'm sure you've heard of Bum Garner up at UNC Chapel Hill and his uh, vehicle stops, traffic stops that he did a study on across the state. Yeah, the uh, oh, uh, that was the racial profiling studies, like early two thousands. Is that right? Something yeah, like that. I think later. So. Yeah, it might have been late, later. And, okay. and basically, what you were just saying about stop, stop charging for jaywalking, because he he was saying all the, the the thing is, officers stop saying looking for drugs, but rarely find drugs, and but they're stopping all these cars. So it it evolves into why you're making all these stops. And so I know so some agencies are beginning to. I mean, I know when I was there, one of the things I did was inspection stickers because I'm like, man, if I got to pay inspection stickers, you got to pay yours too. So anyway, that was kind of what I used to do. But now they're not, uh, agencies are moving away from having, that's on a low on a totem pole, regulatory violations of vehicle. We, we're just not stopping for expired registrations. We're not stopping for inspection yeah. stickers. Just to slow down that 
feeling of being harassed unless there's something else. So, I mean, yeah, obviously. And, and that's so important, right? Because the Ferguson Police Department was mm-hmm. stopping all kinds of people for these very minor infractions. And then they were writing them city ordinance violation tickets for it. And they were doing it as revenue generation, right? This has been referred to as policing for profit. And there are not there aren't too many things that are more destructive to the police community relationship than than policing for profit. And the example I always go back to is Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham. Sheriff of Nottingham was a bad guy because he was extorting money from the populace. Well, that's what the Ferguson Police Department was doing too, but it was doing it legally. It was doing it under this framework of law. Well, if we don't want the police agency to engage in what academics call rent-seeking behavior, which Mm -hmm. is an economic term where you're extracting money but not providing a corresponding benefit. Mm -hmm. If you don't want police to engage in policing for profit, don't make it legal. Put some limits on that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And there are many ways that we might do that. If you don't like uh, police using pretextual traffic stops, well, this person, I really want to pull them over and see if they have drugs in the car, but I don't have enough justification for that. But they're speeding, and if I pull them over for speeding, I can ask them questions if they have drugs in the car, ask them for consent to search, maybe run a drug dog around, right? Right. If you don't like that, change the laws. Wow. I say that like it's easy. Obviously, it's not easy, (laughs) but it's one of the things we should be thinking about. Right, exactly. Wow. You guys got anything? No, it's not often that I'm speechless, but I don't, I don't think I have anything else to add there. <laughs> yes. I, I, I'll take that in a good way, I hope. It's a great way. I think everybody's probably like, thank God. I know. <laughs> we haven't had to hear her so much today. So. <laughs> oh, see, and now, and now my needy puppy is down here. <laughs> Mine finally went to sleep, thankfully. So, Andrew, I saw you pop in. Did you have something? I guess I was just thinking about like the power of voting. I don't, I don't know necessarily the process of changing these laws, but if you know more information about how that process goes, could you expand more on that? Yeah. I mean, voting is sort of fundamental to participating in democracy. And if you don't like the way democracy is looking uh, in, in your neck of the woods, then vote and don't just vote in, in the big elections, but vote in the, in the local elections. Uh, that's sort of key number one. Uh, but there are, there are ways above and beyond voting. There are ways to participate in the democratic process. Uh, and you guys are doing that now by participating with something like you and 5.0. You are helping. This is civics education, right? You're helping prepare people to understand the world around them the way that it should look and the differences between the way it does look and the way it should look. So what do we do with that information? Well, we demand leaders make those changes. There are so many ways for someone to do this, right? So um, go to a march or protest uh, peacefully, uh, which I will will just note. but that is a way to make your voice heard. Go to city council or, or uh, county council meetings and sign up to speak. Uh, anyone can speak at those. You might have limited time, two or three minutes, but if there is an issue, even if it's not something that they're voting on, if you want to raise an issue and say, this is an issue in my community and I'm urging this body to do something about it, make your voice heard. Uh, write op-eds, right? This is one of the things that I do to try and get information out and share perspective. Um, the op-eds don't have to be the sort of like technical expert op-eds that, that I try and do. If there's an issue and you say, look, this is an issue in my community and I want people to be talking about it, write it up, send it to your local newspaper. They're always looking for stuff like that that can help reflect a local view. Um, meet with people. Uh, go to, uh, you know, one of the things I, I tell folks, um, uh, go to a Black Lives Matter meeting if you are uh, not a Black Lives Matter sympathizer. Uh, if you are a Black Lives Matter sympathizer, go to a city, uh, uh, go to the police department and meet someone, right? Get outside of your comfort zone and try and connect with people. Uh, I really do think that after we get past the the superficial differences, most of us have a much closer alignment. We have much more in common than we do uh, our, our, our differences, but it can be really difficult to see past that. So force yourself to get outside of your comfort zone. Uh, that might mean going on uh, a ride along with a cop if you tend to be skeptical of the police. 
it might mean uh, going to that Black Lives Matter uh, meeting if you are skeptical of uh, of the activist groups. Um, I think if you do either one of those things, you will see some things that you disagree with and that may disturb you, and you'll see other things that you're like, okay, I, I get it. I get a little better appreciation for things now. Um, so I think there are lots of ways to participate in a, in a democracy, right? And in the sort of grand academic sense, right? When we're talking about a democracy, we're talking about a demos, a populace, right? So it's not just engaging in the political process. You could run for office. I think that's great. But also talk to your neighbors about these issues, right? Communicate with each other. And for God's sakes, don't just do it on social media. Sorry, this is something of a rant. Like there is so much one-click activism that I just want to throw things. Um, <laughs> click, yes, I, I like that. I support that. Or downvote or, you know, thumbs down or whatever. Yeah. That's like, no. It's that, cute, that, but no. <laughs> yeah, that's not even sharing your view. That that's That is, uh, that is so... It's like preening in a mirror, but never going outside to show the world how you actually look, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't mean to bring it back to looks, but that, 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 was, the, that was the best analogy I could think of under pressure. Um, so if this area is of interest to you, then do something about it. Get your voice out there. You know, the wonderful, crazy thing about living in a democracy is we don't have to agree. We can disagree. We can filter our ideas through this grand experiment of democracy. Um, but that actually requires some commitment. The other the other big point that I'll make, if you'll if you'll indulge me for another minute here. Yeah. Um, don't look or don't just look in the short term. Right. Mm. Um I don't think that police reform, I don't think that looking at a six month or 12 month time frame is realistic. I think when we're talking about police reform, we are talking about cultural shifts. And we have to be, we have to be thinking about shifts, not just in police culture, uh, which is really slow to change, but policing <laughs> in American culture generally, right? Mm -hmm. So I think if you look at policing 50 years ago, it looks different today at a basic foundational cultural level. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be thinking about 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. We think generationally, what can we be doing right now to set up the ultimate success for a better policing? And that's kind of disappointing because people want to see change immediately. Yeah. But the only way that we get that big cultural change is, is incremental, constant pressure, right? right? You, mm -hmm. you, you can't let up. You can't let up, right? This is not something that you can say, okay, well, policing's fine now. I'm gonna I'm gonna go home or I'm gonna I'm gonna turn my attention to whatever other issue you you want to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, the reason that policing changed radically in the 60s and 70s is because the civil rights movement made society and policing change. It changed radically in the 19 teens and 20s because society made policing change, right? But it still took 20 years each time. So if we want to see that same radical reformation of policing, if we want to see these big changes that I think are necessary, then you got to start today. You got to keep that pressure on, but recognize that it is incremental, Right, everything here is is incremental. It's one one little step forward. Sometimes two steps forward, one step back. But in twenty years, that's a lot of steps when you string them all together. Yeah, especially with you talking about the fact that different state laws. I mean, that, that's I mean that's a mountain to try to get laws changed and on the state level. Um, so you know, I kind of want to bring it to a close, but I, I really gotta your obviously like i said i really like your the way you talk i like your perspective i think is supportive of change and reform and actually i think maybe transformation and just kind of gut for me is kind of gutting the system and just building up from the bone again because it just needs so much needs to be done i'm almost to the point to just start over again for some of this stuff but what i one of the things that i appreciate your and in the book with the community uh, expectation and the work that I do. That's kind of why I kind of stay in that area. But I also want folks to understand that, that I think this is a good book for community folks, clearly, so they can understand once they, as I've said in some of my presentations, once you put the protest sign down and go inside the building, 
this book can probably help folks. But I just kind of want to talk about a couple of those articles that uh, how did how do some of the folks in law enforcement currently, because you take a strong thing about police need constructive criticism. You are supportive of getting rid of qualified immunity. And you know, as well as I know, police unions, the, the bulk of law enforcement, they're just like, uh, what? <laughs> you know, so how do you, because I'm sure you're getting some blowback on that. And so, because that's kind of, I think is the right message. And I think it's the right thing to do. It's uncomfortable. Change is uncomfortable. But I think that message, and I just kind of want to know, how do you, how, how, I just know you're getting some blowback on that. I just know you're getting some blowback on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get, I get hate mail every once in a while. Um, I, what's interesting, I, I actually get far more um, officers from uh, officers and retired officers from all over the country who email me and say, uh, that's, that's a really good point. May not agree with everything you say, but you know, I agree change is necessary. So that's actually really, um, uh, really reaffirming. Uh, I do, I do get some hate mail. I do get, yeah, that was uh, my question. Like, do you get hate mail? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, and, uh, and I, I reply to all of it, um, until, uh, until on occasion it becomes so verbally abusive that I that I decide to stop and, and end up blocking someone that doesn't happen very often. Right. You know the the one point that I that I want folks to see it's very easy when you're defensive um, it's very easy to write someone else off and to focus on their positions and not their interests right uh, and this is something that I think it's important for sort of all aspects of human interaction uh, particularly negotiations. Um, and I will absolutely credit uh, Dr. Phil Atiba Goff for for turning me on to this way of framing this issue. Um, don't just focus on the position that someone takes. Look at the interests that are underlying their position. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think we've gone way too far with qualified immunity, and I would support eliminating or at least uh, radically revising the doctrine of qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. That's a position and people can feel free to disagree, but why do I take that position? I think qualified immunity is actually hurting policing, right? Uh, and I think it's hurting policing because when you protect officers who make unreasonable mistakes, which is what qualified immunity does, qualified immunity does not protect officers who make reasonable mistakes because if a mistake is reasonable, it doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment in the first place, right? Officers can be reasonably mistaken. They can make reasonable mistakes under the Fourth Amendment. That's perfectly constitutional. Qualified immunity only applies when officers violate the Constitution. That means they didn't make a reasonable mistake. They made an unreasonable mistake. Well, when you're protecting officers who make an unreasonable mistake or engage in misconduct in an unreasonable way, you're not helping policing. You're hurting policing. Right, you are failing to respect the many thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of officers who would have done the job differently, who would have done the job better. And you are infantilizing the officers who you're saying can't possibly do any better. Hmm. That's the interest, right? So, my interest is how can we improve policing, not just for communities, although obviously that's pretty important, yeah. but how can we improve policing for officers? How can we continue to evolve the industry into really the profession that it can be? And you don't get that with something like qualified immunity, or I mean, there, there are other, other aspects. Let me give you another example. Um, well, uh, we, we can't, uh, we shouldn't criticize policing. This is one of the areas where I get pushback. We shouldn't criticize policing because if police are, uh, if they feel like they're being criticized, they'll engage in de-policing. Uh, they won't do their jobs. They'll hesitate when they shouldn't hesitate. They'll end up getting hurt. And the result is if you criticize policing, you're going to have an officer's blood on your hands. <laughs> I, I, I think that's, I may have said it quickly, but I think that's actually a fair summary of the yeah of the arguments that I've, I've seen leveled against me and others. Um, how much respect do you have for officers if you think that criticism is going to make them unable to do their job effectively? Right, exactly. Like, you can't actually respect them very much if you think, oh no, as soon as they're criticized, they'll stop doing their job. No, come on. 
<laughs> not the good ones, right? right? right. You know, ev everyone is subject to criticism. So uh, I, I just don't see that as a, as a, as a reason to not say, uh, here, here's, a, here's a third analogy that I'll give you. Um, I have two kids. I have uh, a now 16-year-old son. I'm not sure how that happened, and a 12-year-old daughter. Um, and I view it as my job to help them develop into uh, young adults, right? Because I care about them a lot. Well, in a different way, I also care a lot about policing. It's a career field and industry that is incredibly important in my mind. It plays a hugely important role in society. It's a very controversial and divisive part of society, which makes it all the more important. That means if we care about it and we want to improve it, we should call out errors and we should seek ways to improve. Exactly. It, it doesn't mean that I, you know, I, I, I love my children dearly, but it, that doesn't mean that I just let them do whatever they want and define what being a good 16 year old or 12 year old looks like. Right. I help define that. Mm -hmm. Well, in a democracy, it is not up to the government, any aspect of government to decide when it's doing a good job. That's a question for the populace. Do the voters think that it's doing a good job or not? Mm -hmm. So it, when it comes to policing, um, I, I'm a voter. I'm a subject matter expert. I have opinions. <laughs> and I'm going to air my opinions, not because I want to tear it down, but because I actually want to build it up to what it should and could be. Wow. Yes, thank you. Exactly. I mean, yeah, the whole thing about being criticized and slowing down on calls, or it, it just, it's just, it's, come on, folks. That doesn't even make any I don't even know why you would say that out loud. <laughs> yeah, know? I don't. I mean, you yeah. know, and, and, and I get it, but it also sort of excuses and approves of, of that behavior. Oh, well, if we're getting criticized, we don't like, uh, do you, can you, th I can't think of another profession that, that would even try that, mm -hmm. right? Right. Like, look, we, we can't possibly criticize the sports team, the local sports team, whoever they are, right? right. Because if we do, they're not going to play as well next time. Mm -hmm. Have you, have you ever watched sports? Like criticism is a major part of exactly. sports commentary. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Cool. All right. You guys got anything you want to wind this down? This has been like, thank you so much, Seth, for, for being and in, in being informed. This has been really, really great. I, this, this book I'm going to be sure. recommend, recommending. So, cause we do work down in a, in a couple of communities for the disproportionate minority contact. We've got a couple of grants and some smaller agencies. So I'm definitely going to be telling them about your book and um, you know, especially the ones I know that are interested in you know, doing something different. You know what I'm saying? So I, I appreciate it. Yeah. So, thank you for that. I appreciate oh, yeah, that. Definitely. I hope it's useful. Yeah. Well, I, like I said, it's, it's going to definitely stay on top of my desk. From now this point. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen her fangirl this hard. So <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. are you blushing DJ? Is this, is this happening? Okay, what do you have to say that we can close out? <laughs> <laughs> and this is how I'm treated. Um, no, I, I think this is a really interesting perspective to look at policing. Um, and I think it, it, for me, it just highlights how we can all want the same end, but have different, different opinions on how to get there. And I think it's really important that we continue these conversations from not even necessarily opposing sides, but from just different vantage points. Um, and it's proof that, you know, when people are doing good work with their hearts um, and it's well intended that there are ways that we can communicate. So I'm just encouraged by that. So. Cool. Thank you. Andrew. I guess I appreciate you, Seth, for coming and talking to us as well. I, I've learned a lot just sitting and listening to you about how to be a well-rounded citizen, just as an individual, just educating myself and encouraging people my age to educate themselves as well. Um, since we're, we're all going to, we are going to be the ones living in this, this new world, whatever happens um, in 30 to 40 years from now. So I appreciate you a lot. Hell, three to four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I am okay. nervous. <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> me too. Yeah. Seth, hang on. Uh, put, put up your book one more time for me because okay, some folks, instead of listening, they'll, they'll view the video and see your book, Evaluating Police there, Uses of Force. There yeah. it is. Got to get there that, that yeah. angle right. Yeah, thank mm -hmm. you for that. Uh, yeah, no, thank uh, you. Go ahead. 
Well, thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. And I think you guys are, are doing something that's really important, right? Educating and focusing on police is one issue, but we need a better informed populace, um, not just better informed about how to conduct yourself during a traffic stop, which is also pretty important, mm-hmm. uh, but on issues in policing more generally, right? How, how should we interface and interact with policing at all levels from the micro interactions between a particular individual and officer to the sort of macro societal interactions? How can I help affect local police policy or how, how can I possibly shape the national conversation? There is no national conversation without people engaged in it, right? It, it doesn't exist separately from people. It's all people driven. So to the extent that, that you guys and your listeners are, are those people, thank you for that. That's what we need. Thanks. I really appreciate that. So it's, um, yeah, it was nice for you to come on our podcast. Thanks again. And now I'm going to have to listen to Harmony call me a fangirl. So. <laughs> Hope it was worth it. I do. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, folks, for listening and tuning in. Um, and as always, be well. Peace.